Well, as Brandon just said, it's uh, 4th of July weekend, and I also want to add my welcome to our group in Hortonville, our sister location in Hortonville. We're one church in many locations, and so welcome. They are streaming to this service today. Well, one of the things we celebrate, of course, on the 4th of July is the signing of the Declaration of Independence. You know, when they did that, when the colonies broke away from Britain, the response by the king of Britain was nothing initially. They kind of tried to ignore these colonies, but then eventually, of course, they sent troops over and began the Revolutionary War. And there were many famous battles that were fought. Certainly, Lexington conquered battle, uh, the Battle of Bunker Hill. And that began, of course, a, a string of famous battles in the United States of America. We had our famous battles in the Civil War, of course, with Gettysburg, which was around this time in July. And then World War I and World War II with the Battle of the Bulge and the Battle of Midway, lots of different battles that have been famous throughout our history. Today, we're going to look at one of the most well-known battle scenes in all of the Bible, the greatest single matchup battle of all time, David and Goliath. What young boy hasn't imagined to be there to watch young David pick up a sling and with a single, single shot defeat the nine-foot Goliath as he falls down? Uh, every year we go to Israel as a church and the last item on the itinerary is always to go to the Elah Valley to that place where we look at one mountainside, one hillside and another hillside and the valley in between. We go to the actual place where David fought Goliath. And there's a stream there. Uh, it's a dry stream brook now. And what I usually do, and everybody there, you go to the brook and you pick up some smooth stones and I'll pick up a smooth stone, usually about four or five of them, put them in my pocket, come back here, and then I go down to Discovery Land and I'll give it to Tammy this year when I come back and I'll say, here, use these as kind of gifts for the kids for a special prize. And uh, several years ago I did that and Chris Small came back to me the next week. She said, hey, you, you want to hear a story about one of those smooth stones? We gave it to one of our first graders who went to his class. It was show and tell. And he told the teacher in the class, my pastor said, this is the stone that killed Goliath. <laughs> yeah. Could happen. Could have plucked it out of his head and threw it back in the brook. Who knows? Well, we're going to look at that account today in 1 Samuel. And what I want to do, there's several ways you can approach this, but I just thought maybe sometimes it's good just to review the story from the biblical account. So I'm just going to tell the story as it unfolds, and then I have three what I'm calling application questions at the end for you to think about a little bit. First thing I'd like to do is begin by looking at the calling of David, David's calling. David was selected by God to be Israel's second king. He chose David, of course, through the prophet Samuel. Saul was Israel's first king, but Saul had a problem with this thing called obedience. And so God rejects Saul and he tells his prophet Samuel 
I'm going to make a switch. I want David now to become the king. He's a man after my own heart. Chapter 16. Now the Lord said to Samuel, you have mourned long enough for Saul. I've rejected him as king of Israel. So fill your flask with olive oil. That's how they anointed kings. And go to Bethlehem and find a man named Jesse who lives there. For I have selected one of his sons to be my king. So Samuel did as the Lord instructed. And when he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town came trembling to meet him. They think something's wrong. What's wrong? They asked. You come in peace? Yes, Samuel replied. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Purify yourself. Come with me to the sacrifice. Then Samuel performed the purification rite for Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice too. When they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or height, for I've rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see, see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And Jesse told his son Abinadab to step forward and walk in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, that's not the one the Lord has chosen. Next, Jesse summoned Shemiah. But Samuel said, neither is this one the Lord has chosen. In the same way, all seven of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, Lord has not chosen any of these. And Samuel asked, are these all the sons you have? Well, they're still the youngest, Jesse replied. But he's out in the fields watching the sheep and the goats. Send for him at once, Samuel said. And we won't sit down to eat until he arrives. So Jesse sent for him. He was dark and handsome, with beautiful eyes. The Lord said, this is the one. This is the one. Anoint him. God picks the king. The Bible says he raises a leader up. He brings a leader down. So Samuel anoints David as the next king. And then what happens? It's not like a whole delegation from the, from the palace come over and they say, Great, long live King David. No, no. Saul remains as the king. In fact, Saul even has David come and be his personal musician to play the harp for him, to play some music to soothe him. Saul ends up being <clears throat> uh, tormented by an evil spirit, the Bible says, and He's dealing with all kinds of internal struggles and pride and fits of anger. And so David comes to Saul to help relieve his torment. David is actually very loyal to King Saul. Even becomes his armor bearer. That was like a squire during the time of the knights. Knights of the round table. There was a, they had squires, assistants, and David carries the king's spear or the king's shield or his armor. But it's not long before Saul begins to hate David. He's insanely jealous of David. Even though at other times he shows unusual affection for David. Sees him as a son. All of this is showing a great unpredictability of this man. What the Bible would refer to as being double-minded. Double-minded. James talks about this in his little epistle. 
He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it'll be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of sea blown and tossed by the wind. The person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Saul is double-minded. He's unstable in everything he does. And it all comes to a climax in 1 Samuel chapter 17 when Saul is faced with confronting Israel's greatest enemy at that time, which was the Philistine army in the Valley of Elah. Let's pick up the battle scene. It was shaping up to be a pivotal battle. Uh, we, we were on vacation some years ago. We went to uh, Pennsylvania. I grew up in New Jersey, right? Neighboring state of Pennsylvania, but I'd never been to Gettysburg. And so Judy and I both decided we're going to go to Gettysburg and see this place. And Gettysburg, of course, the Battle of Gettysburg was very important. It, it happened between July 1st and July 3rd of 1863. The Union and Confederate armies faced each other, much like the scene here of facing each other, although the Union army had high ground, which is very important in a battle. Confederate army was below, and, uh, but it was, a, a, it was a great battle and, and a great amount of casualties. 51,000 soldiers died in that battle. 28,000 from Lee's army, almost a third of his army was wiped out in one one battle, and 23,000 Union soldiers died. Well, Saul is facing a very similar standoff here of whole armies assembled like this to face each other face to face. And the casualties, usually with this kind of a battle, are enormous. They're enormous. But in this battle, unlike Gettysburg, there is a step towards a much less drastic outcome because the Philistines decide, at least on their end, to settle the battle, with a to settle the dispute with a single hand-to-hand -hand combat with each side selecting its own fighter or champion. Let's pick up the account in 1 Samuel 17. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up the, the line, the battle line, to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. A champion, Goliath, named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. That's about nine feet, nine inches. He had a bronze helmet on his head. He wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. That's about 125 pounds. And on his legs, he wore bronze greaves. These are to protect armor, to protect the lower legs. And a bronze javelin was slug on his back. Spear shaft weighed, was like a weaver's rod, a rod. And its iron point weighed 600 shekels. That's about 15 pounds. His shield-bearer was ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? 
Am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we'll become your subjects. If I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. And the Philistine said, this day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man. Let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Nobody wants a piece of this action. <laughs> Nobody, especially Saul. He's looking for a volunteer. It's like the, the man who climbs up a mountain and all of a sudden he slips and he's falling and he, he grasps onto a root along the ground and he's hanging by this root and it's about to tear or break. And all of a sudden, not a very religious man, but he calls up to heaven. He says, is there anybody there that can help me? And he hears a voice saying, I will help you. Have faith in me. Let go of the root and I'll catch you. And the climber looks down to the, to the gully below. He looks up at the root. He looks up to heaven. He says, is there anybody else up there who can help me? That's the way Saul's feeling. He's looking for a volunteer, anybody, but nobody's volunteering. And I think we forget sometimes in this story, this wasn't a one-time deal. This wasn't a one-time threat. Goliath is not going away. Look what it says in verse 16. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening, and he took a stand. Question, how many times did Goliath make this challenge to Saul and Israel? Do the math. 80 times. 80 times, twice a day for 40 days, morning and evening, almost six weeks. Every morning. Is there anybody out there who can fight me? That's what I thought. They're all a bunch of yellow-bellied cowards, although he probably used stronger language than that. Well, God finally acts. He talks to Jesse, and he tells Jesse, David's father, I want you to send him to the front lines. So he tells, his, tells David, you've got to take some food to your brothers there, verse 17. Now, Jesse said to his son David, take this ephah of roasted grain and these 10 loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to the camp. Take along 10 cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are, are and bring back some assurance from them. They're with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. So David goes to the camp and he overhears Goliath taunting the Israel army. And, and he, he basically is asking his brothers, hey, why isn't somebody doing something about this? Now, the Israelites have been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He, keeps out? he comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He'll also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. He's, he's throwing a lot of stuff on the table here to get somebody to volunteer. And David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes the disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David ends up rebuking these soldiers. 
doesn't care about the reward. He's more interested in who's going to defend God here. Who's going to stand up for God? Keep in mind, this is a boy talking to men. And David is saying, I could care less about any prize for beating this fool. What I care about is the way my God is being dishonored. How could you call yourself soldiers? Shame on you. Where's the man that will stop this disgraceful reproach of our God? Well, Eliab, who's David's oldest brother, doesn't like that, doesn't like being called a coward, neither do the other men there. And so Eliab basically says to him, who do you think you are, David? You're just a boy. Go back to the sheep. But one of Saul's men, he overhears this, and he runs back to King Saul. And Saul sends for David. And he, he basically tells him, David, you can't fight Goliath. You're just a young boy. But look at what David says to him. David says to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. Because he's defiled the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. David is saying, King, King Saul, the hearts of your troops are melting in front of you. You can't let that happen. You got to take some action. That's what leaders do. And, Paul's, and Saul's probably thinking, Well, young man, you are idealistic, aren't you? Pause button. We need to be careful, older people. We don't pass on sometimes our negative, pessimistic attitude to young leaders who want to trust God to do great things. You need to be careful about that. I can say that because I've experienced that here. I came here 25 years ago. You probably don't know this because it was in a private meeting. I had just come here as a young pastor and I was in a meeting with about 15 elders. This is my first meeting with the leadership of this church and the elder who had the Longest tenure, one of the most respected men in that room. When I got up and I started to share my passion, my vision for this church, how I saw God eventually making this church, a church not of hundreds, but of thousands of people. He stood up in the middle of that meeting. He says, that's not God's vision. Oh, I wasn't prepared for that. I said, well, what is God's vision he said, I don't know. I just know that's not God's vision. And then he took me aside after the meeting. He said, Dennis, you're a little young. And in fact, he says, you're a little young and green to really understand what God wants for this church. I was frustrated by that. And uh, here's what came out. I said, well, I might be young, but I'm not stupid. And I don't have to wait 
30 years to trust God for some sort of God-sized vision for this church. I don't think God wants me to wait 30 years till I'm old. I think he can give me a vision now. And I'll listen to your wisdom because you're older. But don't tell me I have to wait 30 years to understand what God's will is for this church. Now, I want to tell you why I was willing to take such a big risk with this church at that time. Because I had very little to lose. It has occurred to me now as I've gotten older. That when you're younger, you are able to trust God for bigger things. You're more courageous when you're younger. When you get older, you're less courageous because you have more assets to protect. And I remember saying back then, I will never be like that man. I'll never be like that older elder. I always want to trust God for God-sized risk. But let, let me tell you what I'm, something I'm noticing about myself. I am less courageous because I got more to protect now. Brian does need to take over. Younger leaders can have that kind of vision. And what I want to do here is I want to give King Saul here some credit. Because I think he responds right. I think he's a model here of how older leaders need to come alongside younger leaders. David tells him, I killed a bear. I killed a lion. The Lord's going to deliver me. I can do this. You notice what Saul doesn't say? He doesn't say, David, David. One thing to kill a bear and a lion. It's another thing to kill an accomplished gladiator whose spear is taller than you are, you're going to lose. Saul doesn't say that. You want to know what Saul tells this young leader? Saul said to David, go. The Lord be with you. What does Saul do? He encourages David. He empowers David. That's how you mentor younger saints. Go. I believe in you. And may the Lord be with you. He even tells David, listen, even before you go, I want to make sure that you're properly protected. Take my armor. You know, about 10 years ago, I went to the board and I said, you know, my greatest fear about this place is that we work so hard. We, we prayed so much to ask God to do a God-sized vision in this place, and he has. My greatest fear is that we're going to become the book of Judges. We're going to miss a generation because we try to hang on to power too long. And I said to the board, we got to build a plan now to pass the baton 10 years from now where we will empower the next generation. We're going to stock this place with young talent. And we're going to have to learn as older leaders how to work with younger leaders 
and pass that baton in a smooth way so we don't miss a generation. And there were no books written about this. So um, I was learning by the seat of my pants, and one of the things I felt that I needed to do was to get these leaders together, to get to know each other. And so for several years, what we did was I had, I had about 40, 50 people in one of our rooms, and I would set up the tables, and I would put older leaders with younger leaders on our staff. And we would meet once a month, and I would do an exercise. And I'm, the main goal was for people to get to know each other, older, younger, to get to see each other. And the older leaders would say, you know, these younger leaders are a lot sharper than I think. They, they understand the generational differences. And the younger leaders would look at the older leaders and go, wow, they got a lot of experience. And, and what I would do is when I got there, there was a whiteboard, and I would put big letters. I'd write letters. Every, every meeting, every month, I did the same thing. I put two words, and the two words for the younger leaders, first word was patience. Patience, you're not gonna get all keys, you're not gonna get keys to all the cities all at once. <clears throat> you get authority, decision making, you get more and more and more. It's not gonna happen all at once. Patience. And the other word I wrote for the younger leaders was honor. You need to honor the older leaders. And I'd say, older leaders, pay attention. Two words. First word, encourage. What younger leader doesn't want to hear from an older leader? I believe in you. Go. And then the second word, empower. Give them decision-making authority. You want to build workers, give them a task to do. You want to build leaders, give them decision-making. Empower them. That's what Saul's doing here. Go. May the Lord be with you. Even take my armor. Well, that's not going to work. Because his armor is way too big. My uh, grandson, Elias' birthday this weekend, and uh, we get to watch him on Thursdays. He's two years old. And after his nap, very often he'll go into the, we, he's in the bedroom, our master bedroom, and he'll, he'll come out and he'll have my slippers on. Well, that's a picture here. David can't even move in this armor. It's too big. And so he takes Saul's armor off, and instead he takes five smooth stones from the brook. Some scholars believe it, they, those stones could have been as big as a baseball. Pick up the story in verse 40. He took his staff in his hand. He chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine with the shield bearer in front of him kept clo coming closer to David. He looked at David, he looked David over. He saw he was a little more than a boy and glowing with health and handsome. And he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come out to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and to the wild animals. 
David said to the Philistine, you come against me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This day, this day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and I will cut off your head. This very day, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and to the wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel and all those gathered here will know it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves <clears throat> for the battle is the Lord's, the Lord's, and he will give all of you into, into our hands. Yeah. Goliath is talking trash. He's mocking David. He's taunting him. David replies, I don't care what you have. I got the Lord. And on this day, you will die. I'm going to have your head, Goliath. And everybody will know when it's all done, my God saves. So David slung his, his stone and it lodged into the Philistine's head. And after he falls, David draws Goliath's sword and he cuts off his head. He probably barely could lift that sword out, but he did it. And when the Philistines, of course, see what happened, they just take off and they run and Israel chases after them, kills the army and plunders them. This is not a legend, folks. This is not a fairy tale. Biblical history. Well, what's the lesson? What's the application? Well, let me give you three short application questions for you to think about. Here's the first one. What kingdom causes, what kingdom causes are you willing to stake, take a stand on and fight for? I think David distinguished between lesser causes and something he needed to fight over. And my question to you is, what kingdom causes, especially when they have to do with the honor of God, are you willing to fight for? Number two. Are you trusting the Lord to fight for you? Some of you are going through some battles right now. And my question is, are you trying to fight the battle or are you trusting God to fight the battle for you? Third question is, what are the characteristics of your heroes? Who are the model leaders in your life? I, I, I think as Christians, we need to have a clear picture in our mind of what a great hero looks like. David, by all means, was not perfect, but he was a courageous, faith-filled leader with a soft heart towards God. That's the kind of leader I want to be. I want, I want to be willing to take on any challenge under God's sovereignty that even the enemy might throw at me. And not trusting in my resources or my strength or my ability to defeat him, to conquer that challenge by trusting in a God who's going to cover me as I take my stand for what is right and true and good and holy. 
I want to be a man after God's own heart. And those are my kind of heroes. What do you look for when you pick a hero? I think David is a worthy option. That's David. Next, next time I talk to you, I'm going to talk about one of his down times with Bathsheba. But today, he is the one who fought for the honor of God. Let's stand for closing prayer. Master, thank you for these role models, these examples. And I do pray, God, that you'll give us discernment on what to take a stand for, what is of lesser value. But uh, there, there will be times in our life that we need to stand up for the kingdom. And I pray we will. Enable us and empower us to do that. Help us to be this kind of a leader, courageous, and yet keep a soft, sensitive heart towards you. And now may the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. And all of God's people said,